what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. If you like this show, I have a very simple and quick favor to ask. Would you please share it with one person who you think might enjoy it? And maybe they've never even heard of podcasting or never listened to one, but maybe help get them set up with how to actually download and listen to content. All right. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. I'm here with Owen Jones. He's a new friend of mine. He's an executive career coach from Colorado Careers. And uh, this is not only the first podcast he's ever recorded, you've never actually listened to one, but we're going to get into that <laughs> later. Owen, uh, thanks for making the time. It's great to see you again. Yeah, very good. It's uh, good to uh, introduce me to this new experience, and uh, it's not one I'm necessarily proud of. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, like, like we were talking about before we recorded, I haven't seen a, an episode of Game of Thrones, and neither of you, so no. I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, there's a lot of ignorance in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I wanted to start by the story you told when we had coffee a couple weeks ago, and it was a former boss of yours, correct? That yeah. told you. Um, well, what was the what was the analogy? I don't want to take anything away from that. Well, first of all, it's the the character we were talking about was um, I'll call him Stan, uh, but he was an irascible. Um, plant manager, um, my boss's boss's boss, I think, at the time. And I was in my young 20s, um, and he would take delight in pinning me up against a, not physically, but verbally pinning me up against a brick wall and <laughs> uh, lecturing me to see how I'd respond. And one afternoon, he, one of the stories that, one of the uh, truisms that, uh, he was trying to impress me, press upon me was uh, a young engineer, and it was about um, you can't steer a parked car. Except he took two hours to tell the story, right? <laughs> but that was what you came away with was a short phrase like that. You forget the rest, but it sticks with you. Um, you know, in my advanced age, it's still something that occurs two or three times a week because it's one of the, it's rather funny, right? First of all, Stan never drove. Right, he did, he couldn't drive a car, okay. right? But but he knew enough to know that you had to start it to be able to steer it, and it's a great analogy because uh, the, the way he used to use it as well was uh, would be in a conference room, a little small meeting room with glass windows in it, and he would walk by, and he'd see us sitting there, and we were trying to figure out why a tool wouldn't run or a machine wouldn't run, and uh, finally he'd cross by one more time, and he'd poke his head through the door and he'd say, uh, gentlemen, you can't steer a parked car. In other words, move your ass, right? <laughs> and get it moving in any direction. And I think it's, um, uh, the longer I've thought about it over the decades since then, um, it, it's a really good one. For, it's a simple thing that's bloody obvious and um, it's a motivator. And it takes some of the risk away. It takes some of the the worry away from starting off in the wrong the wrong direction. Right. So the idea being that you start it out the car. That could be anything. It could be a career. 
getting a career going when it's stuck or networking or it could be lots of different things. It applies to just about everything. Uh, forward motion um, causes you to learn things and pick things up along the way, which causes you to want to change route or keep going on the same route. But it's unlikely it's going to be the same route because the car's pointed in a certain direction, right? And it's unlikely that's going to be the right direction. You're going to hit a wall sometime. <laughs> right. Right? So it's, it's a, for me, it's been uh, like a, several of these things that he gave me. It, uh, it's a good story because it's so ridiculous. You know, it's so humorous. And yet it's true. <laughs> well, like most of those things that are simple and obvious and true, they're, or simple and true, they're not always the most obvious. And to distill it down into something that's a accessible visual metaphor probably drove that home See, and more I th- than anything else. Yeah, and I think the, me- the, the, the skill was in recognize it as a metaphor. Right, that, That's the, the skill that he had, was to say, oh, this simple activity, we all know this. But he was able to think of it as a, as, as a metaphor for something in life. Right, I think that was the intelligent thing that he brought with it. Sure. Except that he was just a bastard of a guy. He, he really, no, he really was. He would. Uh, like in what way? He was outrageous. Really? Yeah, he's outrageous. He would. Um, I, I'm not even sure if he's still alive, but um, let's hope he's not. <laughs> he's not listening to this. Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> but he um, he was having an issue with the tool room uh, at one time, and of course, tool makers are a particular. Um, um, genre of people, a breed of people um, that know without question, it's never spoken, but they just know that the world would not even spin without them, right? So they're the root of everything. I mean, they make the tools that make the tools and all of this thing, right? They're, they're the origin of the human race, right? So he was having a, it wasn't unionized and he had a particular problem with this. Uh, um, at this one time with them, and I forget what the problem was, it didn't even matter, it was probably something quite trivial, but they weren't behaving in the way that he was expecting, and he regarded it as being a challenge to his authority. So his answer to it was to take them at four o'clock in the afternoon, take them into the, a large conference room and lecture them um, and watch the sun go down and <laughs> dare them to leave. <laughs> And he would he would get into all he was trying to get a rise out of him as well. So he he was actually um, lecturing him on the fact that he was uh, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and he could do whatever he wanted. I mean, this is blasphemy, right? So he was really provoking the, these guys who wouldn't be provoked and actually behave themselves, and that was the end of many future problems he had with them. But the the funny story that follows that he was actually moved like I was before I was uh, was moved to the States to uh, Janesville, Wisconsin, middle of a cornfield, right? And he thought these techniques were going to be really useful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Of course, course there there's several things about that, that that, that, uh, they actually bombed really badly, you know, and he was despised. You know, uh, for doing things like that, which um, over the UK, you know, it was um, just normal belligerence from management 
right? But there was there's um, there was other things that he used to do that um, that over there just simply wouldn't work. One of the things was in the in the UK, in my experience anyway, you had this the, the one of the principal motivating techniques of leaders of management was negative reinforcement. You've heard of positive positive reinforcement, right? Well, you, over in the UK, where I was, it was negative reinforcement. If you were an idiot, you know, you and you were worthless. The way you would react as a Brit was, "Huh, really? Let me show you," which is the intention, right? But you transfer that to Janesville, Wisconsin. <laughs> you use those techniques, and they'll say, "Oh, well, that's what you're going to get then." <laughs> Quite the reverse. So he had lots of techniques that weren't transferable, but the um, that was another side of him. But he was a he was irascible. So how much of that on the negative reinforcement is um, it being effective? Because of would you say that it's British culture, or would it be that particular industry? Why was that particular tactic of the negative reinforcement effective there? Uh, I I I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, it, it sounds rather presumptuous to pin it to a, a culture, hmm. um, but in, in where we were, and I meant that in terms of a company culture. No, I, it was a company. It was. I think it was because of who he was, um, uh, and he was he was recognised as being, um, you know, a, a, a bloody tyrant. Hmm. You know, and. Uh, there was only one way to respond. You could either get up and leave, right, uh, which would be the end of that, um, or you just waded through it and came out the other side. And actually, what turned out was he would he would actually respect you for sticking it out and standing up the following day. But he had all sorts of things. That, we used to have a management meeting on a Wednesday night and. Uh, of all things, he would end this management meeting, which we were all involved in, right? Um, and he would go over to the cafeteria and he got a plate of cream cakes, which is, it, it just doesn't make sense, right, for this character to have arranged for this plate. But what he would do, he would walk in first, lick his finger, right? He'd look <laughs> at the cakes, select one, and stick his finger in it <laughs> and walk away. <laughs> that's mine, right? I get the first pick. I don't want it right now, but that's mine. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of things about him that were really good lessons. There was, um, you know, I, we were going to um, a four and a half day week which wasn't a, a reduction in time. It was just a, a reorganization of, of time. So hourly workers could, you know, could leave at midday on Friday and that would be the end of the day. But of course he held all his management meetings on Friday afternoon. <laughs> so it didn't apply to anybody that was, that was in leadership. And I was complaining about this and he said, look, he said, there's no such thing as being fair. You can't be fair. Don't you ever try and be fair. The best you can aspire to be is equally unfair. Hmm. Because it won't, it, won't, it, it won't please everybody, right? 
don't try and please everybody because it's impossible. There'll always be one or two. So you can aspire to be equally unfair. Do a little bit, do the least da possible damage to everybody. <laughs> right? Because it, and then you said on this particular event, you said, um, you think, you think that all these hourly workers love this four and a half days? They don't. The complaints that I've had wandering around the plant over the last six months, picking up and, if you like, the feedback, the, the things that I've learned about it, like, oh my God, another half day with my wife. <laughs> I've got to see my kids for another half day, right? So he said, you can't be fair to everybody. Be equally unfair. I do respect the fact that he would walk the factory floor, though. Oh, constantly. Especially on the way out to place bets. At <laughs> <laughs> the bookie across the street. And he would have a copy of the Racing Times in his coat pocket, right, as he walked out. Everybody knew where he was going. And he would bet, and he would walk right the way through the plant with the copy of the Racing Times in his back pocket, expecting people to ask how he'd done. Would they give him tips on the way to... No, 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 no. no. Well, that, that he probably had his, uh, his cronies, right, that, that he would stop by on the way. And then, of course, he'd brag about all his winnings, and he always won. But he would only... Well, he would brag about his winnings. Sure. He wouldn't mention his losses. Oh, no, no. That, that's not real. That never happened. <laughs> yeah, he, well, was, he was pretty special. Well, your story about Equally Unfair reminded me of something I read about, and I'm not going to, I can't remember the two branches of the U.S. military, but there was one that had a very liberal promotion policy, mm -hmm. and one <clears throat> that had basically nobody got promoted. I think it was maybe the military police in the particular branch, and nobody got promoted. And the camaraderie was way better in the military police where nobody got promoted, where it was more of a sense of that equally unfair than it mm. was where more people would ascend because that at least in this case study i read everybody felt like if if there was more of them than you that had been promoted it it had this distinction of you know people were feeling mistreated yeah there was a bias correct yeah yeah but it <clears throat> but it's also true it's um I think it was less, he had the habit of talking about the opposite of what he meant, right? So he wasn't really saying, um, as far as I was concerned, he wasn't really uh, preaching about being deliberately unfair, right? Which seems, sounds, sounds really awful. And that's part of the humor, right? He was really promoting um, treating people with equality, right? Because another right. one of his sayings... Uh, uh, his pin me against the wall moments, right, was um, everyone has the same distance between their ears. Right? Which, um, when you think about it, isn't true. Literally. Literally, right. Right? It's not true. But his point was, was that it's the same distance, but it's divided up differently. You can get someone who's a brilliant, and we had one, a brilliant engineer, with only 10% left over for human action, interaction, right? So that he said, but everybody has 
um, the same volume of capability, the distance of capability, right? And he would point over and said, even that guy pushing the broom over there, he's got the same distance between his ears as you have, and you better respect that. You better be, you better be aware of it. Because the moment you start thinking that the distance between your ears is better than somebody else's, you're in trouble. I've preached that to my kids, and I wrapped it in the context of that intelligence is relative. And so that guy pushing the broom, I always use the example of somebody that was an auto mechanic, Mm -hmm. right? He might be wearing overalls covered in grease, but if he knows how to fix your car and your car doesn't start and you can't get around, he's the most intelligent person in your universe at that moment. Oh, yeah. And not to mm-hmm. judge people and not to assume that you've got a you know piece of paper hanging on the wall that's going to mm-hmm. make you smarter than anybody else. It's application dependent, I think. Yeah, it is. One of the that struck me in the in, when I was over in Janesville, um, in Wisconsin, it, um, I got to know the plant that we were renovating and the people in it. But the the guy pushing the broom there was. Um, he wasn't the chairman, but he was on the board of the local credit union. Hmm. The guy pushing the broom. And I had this conversation with him. I said, well, what, what are you doing, first of all, what are you doing pushing a broom? And secondly, what are you doing on the credit union board? Right? They're both equal questions on the opposite sides. Yes. And he said, um, I'm here for the, for the pay and the community of work. Right? I'm making the place better, right, in my mind. But where I'm, I can really um, really make a difference to the community is on the outside as a board member. And he said, if there's, if there's two that I think, one, which one is the most important um, to the community, it's the board position, right? To me, it's my pay and my medical insurance and the fact that I'm in a community of work. So he had a social aspect to it. And that was the guy pushing the broom because it, it suddenly struck me. Ah, I remember. Stan <laughs> told me about you. <laughs> but this was in another continent, right? <laughs> right. Well, it goes back to uh, my friend Kirk was a guest <clears throat> on this show a couple months ago. And he told me that his dad was um, involved, I think maybe as a vendor to NASA for the Apollo missions. And he was there visiting on a, a sales call or a, a you know, technical call, you know, on site down in, at Cape Canaveral. And he was sitting in the cafeteria after hours and somebody came up and said, hey, you know, um, you doing okay? What can I get you? What, what do you need? And ultimately it was the janitor. And mm-hmm. the way that Kirk told this story was that he asked this person what he did here. And the janitor replied that I'm here to make sure that we get to the moon. And it was this singularity <laughs> of focus. Yeah. And he was not being oh, no, over exaggerating. No, he was not trying to. I'm on the team. Him. I'm right. on the team. Yeah. And yeah. to me, I'm getting tingles just telling that story because I just love it. Mm-hmm. Of like to be a part of a culture like that, or to part of an organization oh, yeah. where and. The organization is developed by people, but to have that leadership and that vision and that empowerment, right? Like 
those are those are people that if I ever meet them, I just want to keep them in that first orbit because there's something unique and powerful and special about knowing something like that. Yeah, there is, and uh, the, the more you the more you notice these people, um, and the more you talk to them, and it, they're it's almost like they're um, they're passed over, right? Right. But what these people know about the organization, like the guy leaning on the, not leaning, but pushing the broom, what they don't know that's going on in that plant is nobody's business. Oh, I'm they sure know he knows everything. Who comes in early, who they, stays they late. And they touch everybody. Yeah. Right? They have a chat with everybody. So when you had the opportunity to go to Wisconsin with Stan, was that. Um, well, I didn't go with him. Or. Right, he went before me, and okay. then, then I followed, but I was no way with him. Okay. <laughs> was it, did you... Was Happened that, to be in the same town, but... Right. <laughs> was that a choice that you made? Did no, you have an opportunity not really. to stay in the UK? Uh, no, it's... Um, uh, of course, the, you know, you, you kind of forget, or you, you laugh at the more painful moments, but um, uh, we were having a lot of fun. Um, you know, inverted commas, uh, air comments, uh, air commas. Commas like, on the top. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of fun um, automating this plant. Hmm. And one of the benefits uh, of being over in the UK, uh, in the European plant, uh, was that um, these products have been um, invented, uh, if you like, and designed and developed. And then there was only about a 20-foot alleyway to the factory so that we get thrown over Crocodile Alley right into this factory and this plant that uh, I went to Janesville plant um, basically had to manhandle these these products into production right with all of their faults right uh, make it all work and get it out to the world well part of the world would be the European plant Mm-hmm. And we receive this first, they're almost making prototypes, right? But very good ones. And we receive these things and we could look at them and, you know, we can consider how we were going to put this together with virtually no labor, uh, things like that, right? and make them fast, make them cheap. And we had a change of CEOs and the new CEO came down to, to do the tour around the, the world. And he was at the... Um, the UK plan and um, he'd done the tour and I was working at my desk in this this glass office um, and there was someone appeared at the door and it was him so he, he knocked and I thought well, that was cool right who knocks and then he came on in and uh, introduced himself and he said um, straight off the bat he said what are you doing tomorrow I said, well, I've got a pretty full calendar, but I can move things around. He said, good, well, I'll do it. He said, here's a ticket. You're to the, you'll be sitting next to me on the flight back to Chicago, <laughs> right? And uh, so, okay, good. Yeah, this doesn't sound like it was a bonus, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was the start of the journey over. And um, what I was doing was commuting over there with <clears throat> some some of the other guys that were um, out in the uh, um, 
some of the other engineers in the Janesville plant. And um, uh, what we were figuring out was how we would um, basically make this plant more profitable. Bearing in mind that they're picking up all these new products, really, and, and having to you know, manhandle them out with a lot of rework and all the rest of it. And we wound up putting, I think it was three proposals to the board um, for, for money to fix it. Um, uh, two of them were quite unacceptable. Uh, like we, I think we started by talking about um, it was going to take two years. And then the next one was, um, I think it was a year and two months. And then the final one we put in was like nine months, which is totally ridiculous, right? <laughs> and I think at that time it was, I forget how many millions it was, but uh, it was approved. But there were two conditions, and one of the conditions was that um, uh, that I would start work on the following Monday, right? Which, um, and, and I wasn't going to, uh, this was a high pressure thing, it wasn't, you wouldn't go back for three weeks sabbatical and come back and all the rest of it. Um, so the family was going to be accommodated as a temporary thing for a year. So it's a one-year temporary transition. So I phoned my wife up, my then wife, um, and, um, and she's since deceased, but my then wife, and I uh, said, so, well, <laughs> classic, got some good news and some bad news. She said, which do you want first? <laughs> and she said, well, tell me the good news. I said, well, we get to go take the kids, two kids, and um, uh, we get to stay... In, you know, live in America for a year. And she said, oh, that's, that sounds good. That's really good. Because if it was going to be permanent, bear in mind I was commuting, right? If it was going to be permanent, I'd have a real problem with that because my parents, right? I said, she said, oh, well, by the way, what was the, what was the bad news? <laughs> I said, well, we, I've got, we, uh, I'll be home on Tuesday. We take the kids out of school, give the, put the, give the next door neighbours the keys to the car and the house, um, go up to Heath, take the kids out of school on Friday, um, up to Heathrow on Sunday, catch the plane to, to Chicago, get on the Van Gelder bus up to Janesville, Wisconsin, check into the Best Western, um, lounge around the pool on Sunday, it's the best I could think of, right? <laughs> you take the kids, you take the kids and register them in school on the Monday, and I start work. Period. So you moved from the UK to the US in what three days, four days? No, it was actually ten days' notice. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, ten days. And um, how'd she take that? Well, she she went quiet for a little bit. It wasn't long. <laughs> she went quiet. This, yeah, that'll work. Really? That's great. Yeah, she said that'll work. They'll see you on Tuesday. Yep. <laughs> so that's exactly what we did. And now the next door neighbours um, who were retired just looked after the house and made sure it wasn't flooding or anything. Sure. And eventually, um, the other funny thing was, got halfway through that that year, and um, she said, "Well." Um, really would like to go back and visit the parents. Yeah, sure, now off you go. She went on her own and went to visit her parents up in uh, Derby, um, in the kind of, no, it wasn't Derby. It was somewhere up north, Grimsby, wonderful name, Grimsby. 
right? <laughs> big, big, big at that point, a big um, f- fishery, right? And um, so I, I was in a board meeting while she was over there. Um, someone tapped on the door, and my secretary, we used to have those in those days. Right? Sure. My secretary came in and said, Mr. Jones, just step out a minute. So I stepped out a minute. He says, your wife. Jesus, <laughs> what's wrong? I said, well, she wants to talk to you. She said, it's just a short call. So I picked up the phone and she said, um, this is just putting you on notice. You need to find a permanent job there because I'm never coming back to, to England again. Really? To live. So I said, okay, well, I'm sure it's a long story, but what's happened? <laughs> She said, I was in Sainsbury's and without a shopping bag, right? I didn't take a shopping bag there. So I just walked into Sainsbury's like we do, right? And went down, picked all my thing in the car, put it on the gal at the, the uh, um, cash register, checked them on, put them on the, on the belt, right? And paid for them. And she looked at me and said, uh, come on, honey, they're yours. <laughs> <laughs> He said, well, I've got a bag. He says, well, didn't you know you were going to buy something? <laughs> this is English customer service, right? <laughs> so then he said, I, I, everybody's waiting behind me and I have to go to the manager and find a cardboard box, right? Fill the cardboard box with everything I bought, carry it out to my dad's car, right? And I'm absolutely fuming. So you better find a job over there. Not only is she done with that store, that city, that entire country. Wiped it off. <laughs> We're not coming back here. In fact, we ought to start we ought to start and try and sell this house. Because I'm not coming back. <laughs> okay, well this is good news. <laughs> I'll just finish off this meeting. <laughs> oh man, I wonder what the, the long term financial impact to the uh <clears throat> economy of Great Britain was because of that one. Oh, I doubt it. Not very much at all. <laughs> it was noise in the system, right? But yeah. still. They probably wouldn't have even let us back. <laughs> That's what everybody told us. <laughs> we're not going to let you back anyway. Uh, what kind of engineer were you? That's something else we have in common. That we're uh, manufacturing common. engineer. Okay. Yeah, so, or production engineer. Um, so it was... Um, and everything from uh, deep drawing stainless steel um, into long components, um, like if you like, similar to how they make beer cans in multi-stage presses. Oh, okay. Fifteen stations start with sheet, punch out a, a blank, and then cup it and take it through fifteen stations and do all sorts of operations on it. You should run about hundred a minute. So doing things like that all the way to. Um, well, the, the biggest thing we did was on a product that was, um, it started with uh, plastic uh, molding powder fed into the machine. Um, it was a 25, no, 25, 48 uh, cavity um, hot runner mold uh, that would run continuously and load, uh, make these com- the, the outside components, the finished outside components, put them into pucks like hockey pucks 
and they would march off and they would come off the other end of this machine um, packaged and ready to go with people tending it as it went along but no nobody was touching it um, and that was uh, that was my the last project I did in uh, in the UK and that's what caught the attention of this um, CEO that I mentioned earlier mm. so there was 1200 people in the plant in Janesville Wisconsin right doing everything was hand not everything there were some automation uh, pieces that they got obviously a lot of it was hand assembly with primarily a female uh, workforce you know with cigarette and an ashtray and handbag underneath the desk <laughs> crazy that all stopped of course when we when we started to renovate it but there's 1200 people and it was probably when we finished up we never hit the goal um, but it finished up with about uh, less than half of that so what led you out of or drove you away from engineering? Uh, that, well, I find that interesting. Um, uh, my first two projects when I was an engineer, when I just left uh, Rolls-Royce, because um, uh, that's where I came from, and that's another story. Um, but my first two project, automation projects, um, they weren't large, but they didn't work very well. <laughs> That's my words. <laughs> there were a lot of other words that were used to describe them. What did Stan um, say about those projects? Um, I think he was kind of patient at the time, but um, they weren't big enough to make a ripple right? um, or a big wave that would hit his office door. Um, but um, they, they were good designs. Um, and it sounds odd saying that now, but it, they were good designs. Um, but it took me two of these projects to figure out that um, that the reason they didn't work is because I owned them. I mean, mm. mentally, I owned them. They were mine, right? And the people that were, you know, they'd be pushed out through this um, virtual velvet curtain, right? And push it out onto the shop floor and expect it to work. Yeah, of course you do training and everything else, but there was really no ownership there. They would, we would, we were really, I was looking at them as just having a job to do, hmm. right? And the light bulb went on, and uh, I realised that um, the roles should flip. I should be working for them. They're doing the, they're doing the job. Eight hours a day, 20 years, right? right? They're the experts. Sure. They've seen everything, right? And I'm a, <laughs> a raw-ass recruit, right? <laughs> and, and thinking I know best, right? Um, really arrogant uh, when you look back on it. Um, so I, I realized it was, it, it flipped it around. So the next project I did, we got a, we got a, we not only involved them, we built all their ideas and and this escalated as it went on through the years uh, in this job on that job in the UK um, where there was a, a lot of collaboration from the shop floor which meant the ownership was there because when someone's ideas are embodied in what you've produced right um, there's there's a feeling of responsibility too because you've you've contributed to it but you've also is you don't want to be wrong mm -hmm. 
right? So I was the, if you like, the technical consultant, um, I would view myself, that would solve the problems as, okay, this part comes down this rail, um, how's it going to flip over and orientate? Well, there's several ways of doing it. You can do it this way, this way, this way, and so on, right? So it, we would, um, I wouldn't say they were designing it, but they were, um, they had a real, a really strong hand in what was being, what what was being, what they were going to be um, using as machinery, right? and that stuck with me. Um, and it all comes from people like Stan. Everyone's got the same distance between their ears, right? Is is ringing in your head, mm-hmm. right? Okay, let's, let's pay some respect, and they've they've done their time on this. So anyway. The next thing was was um, that was I then I obviously I was part of engineering at that time, and it was um, I was the head became the head of engineering, um, which is another story. But a head of engineering, and then um, shipped over to the states, <laughs> right, <laughs> as a reward. Um, but um, then when I I started to, notionally, um, I started to realize, and I was head of manufacturing then, right? Um, I became head of manufacturing in the States. But I, I started to, because of one of the things I realized was um, the attitudes of the, of the manufacturing crew, the factory, um, with, I mean, the comment that sparked me off was, you'd never guess, you've never, you'll never guess what they've sold now, right? Which is the same thing as the shop floor and not using them, not involving them, right? If you think about it, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. Well, it worked over there. So what are we doing? Why can't we in manufacturing be um, uh, an economic weapon for the sales guys? Mm. Why can't we turn on a dime and do what the customer wants and enable us to make what they're selling. Now, they can't be ridiculous about it, right? Sure. But um, why make stuff, put it in inventory, and expect them to sell it? Because that was the attitude of the factory back then, right? Why can't they sell something we've got? I mean, <laughs> huh? If nobody Stupid. wants it. <clears throat> yeah, but you make them buy it. If you, can't, if you don't offer them everything else, you can just sell them what we've got. It's already there. We've made it. Let's go home. <laughs> right so that led, led to a revolution in the plant uh, this was in Janesville uh, once we got the thing relatively running um, and it um, and that started to work you know it, it, it was a different attitude but um, then you find these these chasms between different organizations like you know, nobody in sales loves anybody in marketing and marketing is putting together all the strategies. They're the engineers. They're the manufacturing engineers for the salespeople. You see, you know, it's a it's a similar it's a similar relationship. You know, and the salesmen don't meet their numbers. Look at what we've been given, <laughs> right? So the same things. By then, it wasn't a deliberate thought, but the same habit. Um, crept in and that's when we jumped ship um, after the, the, uh, three of us jumped ship from um, Parker 
um, to buy a Schaefer, Schaefer pen down in Iowa. And that's what we did in Iowa, which has started to realize that, you know, the, the marketing plans and the strategies need to be put together with the shop floor, the salesman, right? They're out there. They're interfacing with the customer. They know what the beat was, right? And treat them with some respect. They're not just bloody salesmen. Look at what they brought, <laughs> right? So that's how, and that by then I was a CEO, but um, that's how that evolved. That's how my career evolved. But the spark, uh, I wouldn't say it was all Stan's fault, um, but that played a part in it. Everyone's got the same distance between their ears. But the spark was, was it was the aha moment, realizing that stuff that I was making and my machines didn't work. Hmm. Now, they were good machines, everything else, and it was the fault of the shop floor, right? But when it happened the second time, <laughs> what's the common? You know, it's whoa, wait a minute. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm making a, I'm making a career out of this. <laughs> Hopefully, at least you're consistent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, as one of them, we even shipped to America. We shipped it from the UK. I'm going back now. We shipped this one machine assembly machine, um, we made it for them. They saw it uh, actually in, in uh, while it was being debugged and we were running it in the tool room. They, the American guys saw it and said, God, we need one of those. And we hadn't even put it in production. So they ordered one, we made it, shipped it over, right? With nobody to explain it or do anything else. But that's even worse than putting it out on your own shop floor. You're moving it a continent away. Yeah. Right, and of course the thing never saw the light of day. It was a boat anchor. You know, it was a up to umpteen hundred thousand boat anchor. Wow. That's and they probably that was had something to do with them shipping me over there later. <laughs> you're gonna follow that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna go. You're gonna go where that went. <laughs> At the bottom of Lake Koshkanong. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, what are you doing now? And you know, talk to me about, um, you, you'd asked me, a, a, I still don't have an answer for you. You asked me, um, talking about, what do I want to retire as? And so I was... Yeah, what do you want to be in five years? What do you want yeah. to be in ten years? What, yeah. what do you... And it's, um, I think it's important to have some sort of vague idea, right? It doesn't have to be a firm plan because it's not going to work out that way, right? It oh, isn't. no. It isn't. It doesn't, it never works out that way. Um, but it's important to, <laughs> it's important to, <laughs> here we go again, right? Um, <laughs> is, is to start the park car. Yep. Right? And you can start it with a vision of any direction, a career, right? It, it, now, it should be something, to, to make it practical, it, your, your future career should have some relationship to your past experience. Otherwise, you're going to start from scratch because you need to, you put a lot of value and, and equity, money, into where you've come from. Right, a lot of that knowledge that you've gained, um, you could the, the 
if you get into a situation where your direction is using almost none of it, right, it's a really raw start. It would seem very efficient, inefficient. It's very inefficient yeah. because you've got to gather it all again. It's very, it's, so it, it gets simpler as your career, in my mind, um, gets, um, has um, more obvious ties and uses more of your past experience, even if it's in a different industry, right? But it has some association with it, right? It is also um, more convincing to the people that listen, right? Why should you be a brain surgeon? Um, well, it's because that's what I've decided to be. Okay, well, um, with your background, none of it counts. Here's where you start. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Right. So the, the, and that's a ridiculous example, but um, so the closer you can be, I like to look at it as a quadrant, you know, 360 degrees, and that's where the car is. Right. It's a quadrant, and you over to one side of the quadrant, which could be half, you know, it could be a semicircle. The quadrant could be right. So this quadrant of a circle. Um, then it, it's over to one side, uh, too far to one side, and it bears no relation and uses none of the capital that you've built. Not equity, I meant capital. But it's built none of the, none of the, the intellectual capital and the experience um, and what you've learned from life is built into it. You've got to start over again. Which is, um, you now if you're down the road and well, you might be married and you might have a couple of kids, um, you know, you can't do a standing start again, right? And jump the bar, <laughs> hmm. right? You, you've got to you've got to employ some of that capital that you've built. So it needs to be um, have some association with it. That and the easier to recognize for a stranger to recognize that, the better. Now, some things are transferable, um, and I learned that. Uh, I discovered that. Um, that, that isn't the whole answer. Like for instance, when um, my next, um, what I did when we sold, um, or I sold, we sold um, uh, uh, Schaefer Pen to Bic. Um, uh, never be able to go back there again. <laughs> but um, sold to Bic. Um, the next thing we did was we went with a venture capital guy that funded us at Schaefer. Um, and um, my, the CFO uh, and I um, uh, went to work for uh, the VC actually um, in Southern Ohio. This was from Iowa to Southern Ohio. And um, it was um, what he was intentions were do a roll up of um, uh, suppliers to a class eight heavy truck industry. So Kenworth truck, heavy metal parts bumpers as big as this desk, right, that you'd hand weld up. So it went from making high-end writing instruments, probably up to about 5,000 know, pounds each, right, solid gold, you know, fine finishes, all the rest of it, to making bloody truck bumpers right, and doors, <laughs> right? Thinking that, you know, CEO, I, I, can, I'm, I can lead, right? Um, what a shock totally different customer we're talking about changing from Saks Fifth Avenue 
right, to Kenworth. And a big organization is really, it was 10 years behind the auto industry. Mm. So where the auto industry had finished beating up um, their suppliers, these guys were just starting. I'd never come across a customer like that. This wasn't the way I treated customers in my, my career. Right, they were total bullies, total bullies. They'd squeeze the blood out of you. And I want to give you an example. Um, uh, they announced that um, they were going to drive Six Sigma into their supplier base, right? Their tier one suppliers. Um, good. Uh, I, I love that, right? Okay. As being head of this this um, uh, fabrication company, uh, six hundred people in it. Right? I'm going to love this. Right? I've been beating this drum now. I've been there six months. Right? Beating the drum on this, and this is where we got to go. We got to we've got no metrics in there. Got no quality system to speak of, and it was a battle. Right? Um, and there's a lot of other things we can talk about with that plant too. Um, 120% turnover rate. Wow. Well, um, something like 25% uh, functional illiteracy, right? This was down in southern Ohio by the river, right? Down by the river in a van, right? <laughs> um, uh, it's really profitable, um, built by one guy. But anyway, uh, so what they required, for what the what Packard, who own um, other brands as well, but they they own um, Kenworth. Uh, what they required for this um, uh, compatibility with their requirement to go into Six Sigma, right, was someone with a degree. Well, amongst the six hundred people we had. How many people with a degree? One, excluding me, right? One, and the CFO. There was one person who was the, uh, the main production manager who, uh, if we let him go, right, and go on a project to Seattle, right, then it would really hurt. But that's what we had to do because it, it wasn't an offer. <laughs> it's a godfather offer, right? <laughs> right, so he went. And he had to take um, ideas for five projects with him, right? He came back with um, all the Six Sigma plans to implement it on these five projects. And he'd worked it all out for them, including the savings that would result, right? Which they kept a record of. And they let us know that um, they would give us the rest of the year to complete these and they would be reducing our invoices by that amount. <laughs> In other words, implementing it was optional. <laughs> <laughs> but we're taking our cut. <laughs> wow. So I didn't last there long. I was there 18 months. But where we got to was, um, I, and it, it was, yeah, my my ability was transferable in the narrow piece that that I was looking at, which was leading. I was a really narrow piece because it makes no account of the customer. And now you walk into walk into a 
completely different environment where the factory was, right? With, with all of the inherent problems it's got that were manifested in it, and uh, and a, a boss which is the customer, and we were ninety eight percent with these guys. Right? You know, we were captive, and we walk into that, and um, it's nothing to do with whether your skills are transferable. Because you're walking into a cage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, um, you know, it, I'm hearing a lot of momentum when you talk about the, the car and the quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you're not saying that people aren't capable of learning new skills. It's a oh, they combination are. of like your value to the marketplace, to the organization, and time being one of the more important factors to get up to speed. Yeah. And get it's, it's the lag time. Back. It's yeah, the lag, lag time, time to get up to time and the cost of getting there and having dependencies. Right? People that, you know, a family and obligations. Because you start down that road and you collect all those obligations as you go mm. and stopping mm. for, nah, brain surgeon, five years, Right? With no income and a, a huge bill, right? That's that's not really, I would suggest, a practical thing that any good family would support. So you can't, you, you know. And then the, there's the other side of it: is what should be a hobby and what should be work. Now, I'm not suggesting a brain surgeon should be a hobby, right? <laughs> but but that's the other part of the equation. What's what's a hobby? Because, yeah, you, you read a lot, and a lot of advice will say, you've got to be passionate about what you do, right? Oh, I, I love playing guitars. I, I mean, I, I can't, right? But that's an example. I had a client that, when I asked him that question, we, we've got to, got to drill down and find out what really is meaningful to you, right? Well, music, okay, this isn't sounding too good, right? And it's in particular, it's guitars. And he had a passion for it, but it's a hobby because the consequences of making that into barely scraping by as an individual, right, in that career, right? He's not prepared to shed obviously, all the obligations he's got. I mean, it's just not, it's not on the cards, right? So the hobby, what's a hobby and what's a career? Now you hope to have a career that's got some degree of passion to drive it. And passion is, is an overused word and it's probably too strong, but it's something in your career that um, you, for instance, it could be, um, Currently in vogue is AI. It could be AI. Um, I, I've done a few bits and pieces, but I'd love to see how this could be applied. And it may be not me that's applying it, but right. So you can there's a there's a there's an interest that's rather weak, but somewhere between an interest and passion that's driving it. And it, it, all careers need that. You know, you you need need something that's pulling you along. So you get up out of bed in the morning and you can't wait to have at it again. You're going to have bad days as well, but you can't wait to have at it. You know, and, and 
as my as Stan used to say, is push the peanut across the floor with your nose. <laughs> I think it was a party game, right? But he, yeah, he he would draw that analogy. So, you know, life is like pushing a peanut across the floor with your nose. <laughs> <laughs> So is that what you do now is help people to find the right peanut to push? Yeah, it's something, um, it's to find not the right peanut necessarily, but the right um, motivations, oh. right? It's the, it's the motivations because pushing a peanut across the floor isn't fun, right? All fours, looks pretty ridiculous. Hopefully there's no windows, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, that, that's, isn't, that's not the goal. It's, it's to... Im- um, to employ something that you're really interested in. And that could be other people. Um, it could be relationships, sales, right? Business development. It could be analytics. Um, I love seeing all this. Do you realize how much data these guys have got stashed in the cupboard? I mean, the drive, the cloud, mm-hmm. right? How much data they got stashed in there and they're not even looking at it? We, we I won't mention their name, but there's companies here in Denver like that that have got um, equipment out in the marketplace with all the customers that's reporting continuously back to them and they're storing it. And they don't do a bloody thing with it. But but it's going to be useful. Okay. Right? (laughs) Now, there there is a guy that went to this company um, who actually was a client of mine um, who's got, who, who's an absolute, um, he's ridiculous. I mean, when you talk about the distance between his ears, 98% of it is um, envisioning mathematics and the analysis and the calculation, um, searching big data, right, and, and pulling out answers. It's all going on in his head. And when he starts to talk about it, his eyes go wide, like this, they're popping out of his head, right? He's over there. He's got in on it. Now, his trouble is that 10% of the other side of his ears, right, um, uh, hasn't, uh, isn't allowing him, that restriction isn't allowing him to convince other people, <laughs> right? So it's all a balance, but it could be getting off the subject a bit, but... Um, that's a really good example of someone following their passion. In fact, in his career, he was um, he was with uh, I can't remember the name of the company, the National Cash Register or something. They're still around. I can't remember the name of the company, but um, they had an obsolete product, product that was a cash cow product that was still in business, still being used but was just creaking at the end of its life cycle, right? And they were, it was worth so much money, it was a cash cow, that pulling the plug on it um, was, was really dreadful. It, they, couldn't, they couldn't bring themselves to do it. It wasn't, the company wouldn't have survived. So uh, what, he, what um, he was hired to do, when he was engaged, he was already there. What he was engaged to do um, was to keep it limping long enough that the new product replacement could be smoothly transitioned in. So what he did is he absolutely gutted it, wrote all new stuff for it, right? 
and they found that they didn't need to replace it. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah. But he, he had a field day. He worked all the hours that God made and having fun with it. Because it was dead already. No risk. His death was announced. <clears throat> right. Right. All he had to do was keep it running, but he found more and more as he dug into it that he could do this cute thing. You know, if we change the software platform it ran on, right, we we could do with this other language, we could do all sorts of stuff. You know, we could put a modem in it, we can we can report with it, we can and it had had more when he finished with it, um, it, it had its rise in capability um, was above the one they were trying to introduce as its okay. replacement. And he could have done that with the new one too, but that's it's that sort of that's extreme passion that's driving that. You know, it is, and he's watering his his mouth's watering when he's telling you this. So it's. I'm not saying every career should be like that, but it should have that kind of a feel to it. But so, how you, do you pair people with those careers? What are the things that you do to have the likelihood of that happening? The the key thing is that um, that I do is what there's one uh, very benign um, looking exercise. Um, it's not really an exercise, but um, and my clients know it well. It's five business accomplishments. And it's transformational hmm. uh, in lots of things um, because there's some key words there. It's got to be business. The accomplishment is an employee of the month, right? It may be what got you there, but it's not in being employee of the month. It's not. Um, uh, it's not a degree, right? That's they're all personal. So this is the beginning of translating one's. Um, value um, to a potential employer, right? This is the beginning of it, because now what you're doing is you're looking at this, um, you're looking at these uh, business accomplishments, and you're explaining them um, at the company level. You know, for instance, I um, use CAR, um, challenge, the actions that were taken and the results, right? Very simple. And this is a benign looking exercise, which is part of its beauty, right? It's very simple. Start off by um, picking your five, um, the, the, your five favorite business accomplishments. Business meaning that it impacted the company. It didn't impact, it may have impacted you. It's not how hard you worked. It doesn't impress anybody, it's a negative. Oh, I worked for 15 hours for three months straight. Oh, geez, that's the last person we want, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, the, the thing is, is, is to comb it down and look at the, the impact on the people that are paying you, your customer, because that employer is going to be your customer. Again, we go back to my experience in the plant, right? It's the same thing. It's your customer. Now, people don't like to look at their employees, uh, employers as customers, but... They are. They're paying you for a service, right? So you, you, what you're doing in, you're pitching these stories just as general stories, and they can be all over the map. It doesn't matter. Anything that comes out of your head related to the story, no more than half a page because you're going to rip it up, right? It's it just a brain dump. 
not not to worry. I try and get them not to worry about the format, anything like that. Even if it's all one on one, one on sentence, far off a page, it's good. Mm-hmm. Now we start to look. It conveys a story. Then you start to look at what the challenge is. Now the challenge where we're heading is to boil that down to two lines, and it's the company really? the company's challenge. It's and you get there by asking why. Why were you doing this thing in the story? Why were you doing it? Well, I was doing it because we needed to get this project in. Okay, why were you doing this project? Well, um, it was uh, because um, IT needed it. Why did IT need it? <laughs> well, there was something going on uh, with um, an integration. Oh, okay, company's going through an integration. Almost impossible. Right. Ever seen a good one? <laughs> no. Right. So what you're doing is what you're doing is is raising it to the level where it's at an eye level to your customer. Right? And you're making the translation for them. Don't expect them to look at your story in an interview or anything like that and be able to make the translation as how that could be useful for them. Don't rely on that. Right, so you you've got the you've got two lines in the end. Right, we're going right to the end now. We're going to go through several iterations of this. Right, so you've got two lines for the challenge, two sentences, most max, and don't run them on. Right, normal size sentences. You get away with one if you do it properly. Right, a company um, had was on a slow glide path of sales since the recession. Period. And if that doesn't cause a lean-in, like, really? <laughs> right? So what did you do? If that doesn't cause a lean-in, then there's something wrong with the other side. It's probably the wrong company. Well, that's the hardest thing to do, is write something effective, oh. compelling, and short. Oh, it's way more difficult than filling a, than writing an encyclopedia. Yeah, way more difficult. Um, but what's happening when you do this, when you do this, and, and we haven't come on to the actions, you've got to limit the actions, and that the actions you took, and you don't start with implementation. You didn't, you didn't do that. You didn't just go down and start implementing. You put a moment's thought into it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Before that. So start at the beginning. How did it come to you? You were selected. Okay. How, so we talk about that. And you can run a couple of things together. But the first thing is you're going to do some research to validate what the problem is, what the underlying problem for this challenge that the company's got. That's a big piece of work to find out what's driving that. Because you've got all these preconceived ideas that are going to be handed to you. right? So that's a big piece. So you need to show that. You know, in these five bullets that we've got, right? One sentence or two for each bullet. And then you go down, there's um, the next one is probably going to be putting a plan together. One is analysis, second one's plan of, right, of how we're going to tackle this. You've got to sell it properly and get approval for it. You're going to start to organize, right? Who do we need? Yeah. Right? And, and so on. 
And the other one that everybody forgets is how do you make, when you walk away from it and it's all solved, how do you make sure that it's going to continue? Because it can't be dependent on you, right? So it's 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 uh, installing maintenance. So that's that's the five bullets. Then you end up with the results. You've got two lines again, right? And the, re the results. And this this is in I think this I I think this is, this piece is interesting. The re results um, need to answer the question in the challenge, mm. right? In one year, um, sales rose ten percent. Over three years, it rose X. In our example, right? That's all that needs to be said. You don't need to embellish it. You don't need to make it look fancy. It's fancier looking stupidly simple. <laughs> right? Totally, totally, yeah. And you haven't you haven't indicated that you even raised a bead of sweat. Now you have done, right? But that's immaterial. Because from the company's point of view, they don't care how much time you spend away from the family. They don't care. Other than the fact that, that you might burn out and it might collapse, right? That their results might collapse. Right? So it's totally company self, it's a business, right? It's a business challenge. Yeah. Right? So the other thing, there's several interesting things that come out of that, right? To tie it back to your, your question. Now you're getting a really good sense of several things are going on. You get a really good sense, I do, and, and other people, the people doing it do, of what the talent is. Because the, the, you've got five points and there's usually some, some points that are in line there, right? There's some things that they're doing that um, they're obviously good at. You can tell by the body language whether it's something they hate doing. Right, and they've not picked them because they hate them. They've picked them because they liked them. Right, it's your favourite ones. Right, and, and they they can't wait to get the story out. Right, so you can see it. There's there's a glimmer in there of um, some some drive. Right, and it it may be um, it may be based around relationships. Right? It may be based around um, analytics. It may be based around, right? So all that's flushing out, right? Just through these stories. Now, they're not industry specific. Right. Right? So you, you can start to see where that quadrant is. You can virtually map that quadrant out as to where they could, they could go within that quadrant that relates to some of their experience, right? The other thing that comes out of it is, and many people realize it, is that their perspective of their value shifts immeasurably. Their brand, yeah. right? Their personal brand moves. And it's almost subliminal what happens. You have to almost say, so how, how did that relate to that story at the beginning that you wrote and just threw on the piece of paper? It's totally different. It wasn't focused on the, the company. It was focused on how many hours I put into the job, right? So the, they've shifted their way of thinking. And, and personally, I think it's the most valuable piece of that little 
that little episode, that little process, is they've shifted how they view their value in relation to their employer. That's huge. Because now they can speak to their, their, their next employer, right? Uh, at the same level, with stories that relate to problems that they've probably got or seen. I love that. Now, what it, what it also comes in, the, the other thing you can use them for, you see, and why I have, why, why the client's doing this, right, and not me, right, because it's like the machine on the shop floor, it becomes mine. <laughs> it's not theirs, right? right? See, there's certain things you learn that um, it applies to just about everything. It makes you who you are, right, like that machine. And getting it to make, getting to make one that worked, right? That one experience and that one light crafted my career, right? And it still is, right? It's still influencing me. So um, it becomes mine, not theirs. Which means when they have to use it, they've got to learn it. Like the operator, they've got to learn to that crap, right? That he went, and, and you'll find some of them and say when you go to an interview and you say, well, what shall I do to prepare for the interview? I say, read your cars. Cars? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I remember those. It, it means they haven't digested it. Right. Right? Because when you get to an interview and someone says, well, you have had a time when you had to lead a team? Open-ended question, right? Uh, it's easy. Just get, get, the, get the interviewee to start talking right? so you can you can say uh, you can say yeah the answer is um, yes there is right that's a good answer that's all they've asked right it but what they're intending to do is to get you to tell you more so what you do is use the story you use the car because by telling the car this was the challenge that the company had Here's what I did about it. Here's how I organized it, you know, three down, right? Here's how I led, and here's the results. Now, look at that from the interviewer's point of view. Look at the information that they've got about you and the impression that they've got with a story like that of, of who you are. And it's pitched at their level, right? Here's a guy. Because the other thing I skipped over is you've got to have numbers in there, mm. which is another whole question, right? Because there's a, and I'm not even sure I can find it, but I read a, um, a Harvard Business Review article on the effect of um, people's recall of a story with and without numbers. Really? Oh. If you ever find that, I'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, there's actually a, there's not related to that there's a really I've sent did I send you that video the uh, storytelling the storytelling yes I've got that called up on my monitor that, that that guy is I mean everybody's a young guy for me right but that young guy is brilliant he's a blog writer right he's brilliant but uh, if you have a number in a story and I I'm not even going to be saying publicly what what I think the numbers are right but it quadruples the 
ability of people to remember the story time down the road and it's attached to you right so they remember it with numbers it quadruples it now the other thing it does is that the on this harvard review test was that the other thing that went along with that is their opinions about the story was that it was quite accurate can't remember the numbers didn't even remember the numbers being there but it was accurate right the other one it gets forgot in like 20, a, 20, a quarter of the time it gets forgotten, right? And even when they remember it before that, right, it was just a story and they weren't quite sure whether it was true. <laughs> now, the, the, next, the next problem is, is um, about numbers, right, is that I've got no documentation for that in this story. So that's the discussion I have, right? So... Right, has, I've got no documentation. I can't prove that. I don't know what the numbers are, right? Not even to zero decimal places, right? So I said, okay, think of it, and maybe this is the wrong use of it, but uh, think of it as an adjective, right? You're trying to give orders of magnitude to the reader. It's a descript. It's a description. It's a descriptor. Right, so you're, you know, so the next part of the conversation with someone that's refusing to admit that they've got any documentation for it, right, is, okay, well, was it one? No, no, it was more than one. Yeah, was it a hundred? No, it wasn't a hundred. Okay, was it ten percent? No, it's more than that. Fifty. Uh, 45, 40, good, let's use that. Now the reader has an impression of the magnitude of the change that you pulled off, right? It's really important. Otherwise you're saying lots of, much, <laughs> right? A bunch. A bunch, a whole bunch. I'll never forget when I was in a plane coming over to America and sitting next to this um, American gal, right? One of my first trips over, and we're flying over Canada. And she's looking out the window at this plane, and she looks back at me and said, Look at that! There's a whole bunch of water down here! <laughs> and I'm left thinking, Bunch? Water? <laughs> How's that possible? <laughs> like a bunch of flowers or... <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so it's... Um, numbers are really important. But you're, you're, they're part of the story. It's not... that you. It's, and you can even... Like, there's even get-outs you can use approximately in the order of... You know, mm. around. Right? And you could even give them a sentence when you say it, you know, and I'm just using that just to give you an impression of the sort of scale it was on. Don't hold me to that. But you've got to get the number out. You've got it. Yeah. You know, the, 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 you've got the number. It's just that you uh, can't support it if you said it. But you've got the number, you know the magnitude. Right? And that's what we want. It's just a, 
it's like a, a describer. It's just using it as a descriptor to give someone the scale. Or it's going to default to zero. Oh, right. <laughs> or be uh, not believed, which is the same as zero. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or forgotten. Yeah. Right? In yeah. our, in our Harvard Review thing. Right. Yeah. Well, Owen, oh, this has been great. I want to be <laughs> respectful of your time. But I can't remember the last time I've taken this many notes oh, uh, during an interview. And I, I've absolutely enjoyed it. And I can't tell you how much I enjoy having a, a British person in my life again. This I'm time. an American. Well. <laughs> <laughs> With a funny accent. Right. Yeah, when I go back to the You're UK, Wisconsin they think accent. I'm American. Do they really? Oh, yeah. You bet. <laughs> yeah. I'm mid-Atlantic. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and it's um, it's been great to, to meet you over the last few weeks. Thank you. Um, the you conversations well. have been terrific. You're a bloody natural. Thank you. Right? Uh, you could pull spaghetti out of a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Okay, good. And uh, this has been a pleasure. So thank you very much. And I think you're, by the way, the the hard drive full light was blinking about five minutes (laughs) in. (laughs) Where can uh, people find you? I'll post links to all your contacts. You can find us on, the best way to find all all about us um, and my bio too, if you dig deep enough, is um, coloradocareers.com. And our office is on Larimer Street, in, uh, as you'll find on the site. Um, which, incidentally, is a funny story behind that, too, because uh, my lease was up down in the uh, tech center, and my good wife said, uh, don't bother renewing it. I've just found a new place. This is a cool building. Yeah, but she likes the shops. <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Right? Yeah, right. That's what they say. Owen Jones, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Very good. If you get outside and that's on a bike or skis or snowboard, snowshoeing, or you simply don't like being cold, take a look at the Warm Front Chest Warmer. This is a company I started years ago and with the help of a great number of people got this company and this product off the ground. It is a thermal chest warmer, which is a fancy name for a bib. It is handmade here in Colorado by my business partner, Linda, of Polar Tech Fleece. There's two different weights. But the concept is to insulate your core while you're outside. And so, like mom always said, put on a hat to keep you warm. Keeping your core warm while you're moving through the cool or cold air, or you're simply just tired of being cold, One of my customers, Sue, doesn't cycle, doesn't run. Uh, She's actually a breast cancer survivor, and she got tired of her reconstructive implants being cold. So take a look. Uh, I guarantee it personally. It is handmade in Colorado here, like I said, and uh, it's been a fun venture. It's still growing. It's still going. But take a look at thewarmfront.com. That is T-H-E. W-A-R-M-F-R-O-N-T. Hey everybody, this is Matt. I don't have sponsors for this podcast. I do have one supporter via Patreon. Jason, thank you so much for doing that. Wanted to tell you about something I pay for, I use, and I really love, and that is HelloFresh. Back in January, 
uh, my daughter and I, who we love to cook together, it's one of our favorite activities, we're looking for a way to save some money, save some time, and improve the quality of what we were eating. So we looked at some options, and HelloFresh is what we chose. And I absolutely love it because once a week, we get a box delivered with three meals for two people. They come pre-portioned, and there's so much less food waste. We don't spend time trying to pick out recipes and doing a shopping list and then going to the grocery store. It has made for such an enjoyable experience in the evenings. We talk so much more. We always did, but we just enjoy cooking together and it just makes everything so much easier. And like I said, I pay for it. (laughs) They have no idea that I exist. But um, if you want to get a $40 discount on a week's worth of meals from HelloFresh, go to bit.ly slash HelloFreshMatt. That's all one word. And you'll get a $40 discount on a week's worth of meals. Like I said, I love it. I pay for it. They're not supporting this. But it's just been um, transformational in how much easier eating well has been. So take a look. And thank you very much.